Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with, now it's Max, right? You like to be called Max. Yeah, um, no, in US, people know me as Max, Max Lee. Um, and then my Chinese name, the given name is Yue. Uh, so in China, people will call me Li Yue. So in Asian countries, the family name always comes first. And then I'm, comes your given name. I'm just going to call you Max because I don't want to mess it up and then be rude. But Max, please introduce yourself to everyone out there and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, so again, I'm Max uh, on Li Yue, um, uh, as my Chinese name. Uh, I was born and raised in Shanghai, China, um, at the Yangtze Delta, where the Yangtze River meets the Pacific Ocean. Um, I moved to the United States at the age of 21, um, did my college at Swarthmore, uh, a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. Uh, I got my degree in engineering and then minor in environmental studies. And afterwards, I think uh, I had a sort of an adventure. I first went to what's called Oceanographic Institution, um, did some research on marine biology and the ocean, physical oceanography. Um, then I told myself I need something new. So, so I, I got a car for free and drove across the country and went to Southern California, Joshua Tree and Palm Springs and joined the Student Conservation Association, Southern California Desert Restoration Corps. So I was with uh, all my other hippie, hippie friends um, protecting and killing the desert, um, the Mojave and the Colorado Desert that was impacted by human activities such as oak up um, off highway vehicle recreation and invasive plants in the fire. So I was only allowed to stay for one extra year uh, after my finish my undergraduate legally. So after finishing one year, I went back to China and traveled. I worked as an environmental engineering consultant and then I volunteered for grassroots environmental NGOs. Um, so eventually I decided um, I want to study ecology, given my experience in Joshua Tree in Palm Springs. So, with, so, yeah. Well, so, I'll say with working with the environment, for instance, you know, that kind of, I, I guess, addiction that you can really get to when you start to realize that nature is something that's just unexplainable and pretty powerful in so many ways. Um, what ideas have you ever thought of? working in the field, something that you could probably implement or something that you could probably do, or maybe we could do better? What well, idea? Well, I think it's not just ideas. It's, it's inspiration. Um, you know, for example, when I finished my work in Joshua Tree and went back to China, um, my idea is how can I further protect the environment that cares so dearly. Working in the Mojave and in the Colorado desert for eight months, you build a really tight connection with the desert. 
that I love. And uh, and it was heartbreaking to know three months later, a lot of the places that I backpack, camp, work, work were burned because of some exotic grass that introduced and uh, you know um, went into a higher abundance in that desert. So. As I said, after working in China, I decided to, to pursue a PhD in ecology and evolution. Um, and uh, so the idea at the time is how, how to protect, how to promote the biodiversity or to preserve the biodiversity we have. Why some introduced species becomes, as Peter described it, invasive uh, and causing problems. Whereas we also have many introduced species that just naturalize and become a contributing member of this bigger ecological community. So that was my driving question when I joined the research lab with Peter Chesson. Um, and Peter, uh, in the episode, um, he explained that his theory is to understand how different species coexist despite they compete with each other. And sometimes this competition does lead to extinction of other species. But often it doesn't lead to that, but it leads to something we call the niche partitioning that species can actually coexist. And that's how we can actually have such a tremendous biodiversity that we have. Otherwise, we're only left with one species of plant, one species of insect, yeah. one species of mammal. But the truth is we have such splendid biodiversity that we still have despite we're in the midst of a sixth mass extinction. So, how so that would, was my driving question. Yeah. How would you go about or implementing to, I guess, make a more effective, bio, it would be more effective biodiverse, I guess, environment. Because one thing I started learning with Peter was that a lot of people that start, I guess, bringing over plants that necessarily aren't supposed to be there just because they look more appealing or more attractive for your yard or something. I get it. It's okay to have a couple, but people never really have a couple. They have a lot and it ends up changing the landscape in so many different ways. And already with climate change or whatever topic, I guess that happens to do with the environment protection we are changing our environment in a lot of ways. And it's happening so drastically, I don't think things are able to adapt to be able to handle the situations that they're being placed in. And I think if you if, if, if it was sold properly, if it was made properly, that raising the, the plants or these types of things have incentivization, I would say, for the natural animals that are in that area to be around. You know, he was mentioning the sparrows in Arizona, the, the, the sparrows that are everyone loves well they like this certain plant but nobody's growing that plant they're growing something completely from a different area so if they just grew that plant they knew it would bring the sparrows in then more people would have that natural plant but you see so much of this stuff so many landscapes start to change i live in a beach town we're not supposed to have palm trees but people are implementing palm trees and because it looks nice now it's not taking away from all the other trees but more people are starting to get palm trees because they see a couple people started with it. Now they're realizing, oh, I can pay to have that done. And then it kind of changes the landscape after, I mean, uh, 30 years, 40 years, depending on how long it takes. But I think when you when we talk about time, time is a grand scale. So evolution, all these types of things are a grand scale. But if you really look at how fast we always go, like, I'll do that next week. Next thing you know, it's next week. 
You know, it happens very, very quick. So even though one thing comes over and goes, oh, that that won't take effect until 20 years, then it's 20 years later. And it's it, it it's like in a blink of an eye in a sense. Yes. So how can we do it properly? So the thing we do actually does not lead to a degradation of the environment that we live in. That's the biggest question, actually, for the time, um, for our own survival. And that leads to, um, before you know, we started this recording, that I taught that my current endeavor after finishing the PhD, after finishing being a research scientist for five years, is going back to China and start, start a path towards natural farming. And so it's the same thing as we farm, as we build an urban landscape, as we bring plants to our own yard, to our own city. Often our intention is only to meet our own desire. And we do not care or pay enough attention to the need of others. The others are not just other people, but also other species. And so the principle of natural farming or the principle of ecological system is interconnectedness, is interbeing. So together we are. And if we only care about our, our own needs, our human needs, and disregard the other species' needs, other beings' needs, then we will be punished. Because in nature, everything is connected. And we try to, if we try to destroy that connection, then eventually the victim is ourselves. We just, I, I think that starts with people's morals. Now, I see you're taking it more of a spiritual route, um, which is a, another way to show people this as well, too. But it's just implementing morals into people. If people really realize, like the information that I learned from Peter and the information I'm kind of learning from you right now as well, too you got to have respect for the land. Now, people who do know that are farmers who are doing it properly, people that are involved in it, and they're able to see the change and being able to see the damage that is done. But a lot of people are disconnected from their food, man. A lot of people are disconnected, not only from their food, when it comes to crops and farm animals, they're just disconnected from the world. I think that happens to do with a society that's been so one mindset in such a long for our for such a long time now, where we're more focused in our devices, rather than focused on what's actually going on. I mean, half the people are retweeting things about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, rather than focused on what's happening in the environment that they're in, what chemicals are being sprayed on top of their crops, what food is being industrial farmed in so many ways. And there's benefits to industrial farming but if you look at the grand scale between the moral benefits the obligations and stuff too it's why so many people take the vegan route a lot of people can't see the slaughter of animals in a sense i think when you start showing people that maybe you can show them through a spiritual route but just have a respect for the land and watch things start to change i mean during the pandemic i think we all heard about venice how the water started becoming more clear I mean, that was only in a short amount of time, a couple of months, people not using that channel and the water started to like turn back to its natural color. Like we, 
start to realize how big of an impact that we play as people. And I think that's the first step in starting to see change is educating more people, the younger generations, the kids that are in school, it should be taught in schools that you should be able to respect your environment. Cause with the amount of time people are spending in their homes now, they're not able to see it. Well, Robbie, I will challenge you to think that to respect everything, to respect each other is a spiritual practice. I'm trying. To have I'm not strong, spiritual. But... Have, have a strong moral conduct is a spiritual path. And the spiritual path is deeply connected with a practitioner path, with a scientific path. Because you only with evidence can you actually be convinced why it is necessary to respect everything. Being an ecologist educated me to see deeply a connection with all, within the ecosystem. You have to have every, every component of the ecosystem working together to have a thriving ecosystem. If, if some members start to destabilize that system, then everything falls apart. Um, you know, often nature is resilient. Nature tends to, to, to bring things back. Peter mentioned the invasion of a bubble grass, which was, oh, I was hired as a conservation research scientist to specifically targeting that question, that challenge. And when you have a member, in this case, bubble grass, um, purposely introduced by human being um, to, to stabilize the soil and to provide food for cattle. That was the reason the bubble grass was brought um, from the Turkana Desert in, in Kenya to, to, to Texas and then later to Sonora and Arizona. That species was selected to be super, super fit for a dry climate and to be able to grow on soil that native species somehow did not have the same capability to grow into that density. And once it takes off, uh, it starts to promote fire. And once you start promoting fire, you start reducing the biodiversity on that landscape. And I don't, you know, we don't know because at the moment we're doing our best to prevent that expansion of the bubble grass. But we don't know what will be like if the entire landscape of the Sonora Desert in around Tucson is covered by bubble grass and it burns every year, several times a year. Um, I think that would be very, very destabilizing. Yeah. Well, in I mean, that case, people would raise the point, though. People would raise the point that maybe that was a test run and we'd have it more effectively done the next time we tried to implement something in there. But then that brings back the moral question Do we have a right to change? the original format of what the land is? Do we have a right to be able to do so to make our lives easier? I don't think so. I think too many, that's why we have like national parks and stuff. People love to go to national parks. They love to see the natural beauty of stuff. But why do we have natural parks? It doesn't make sense. It's because we changed all the land around it. We don't have the right to do that. I mean, as people go, well, we're humans. We have a consciousness. Plants don't. How do we know? Like, they, they feel something different. I believe that. I very much agree with you that just like humans and other animals, a living organism has a conscious, right? But the consciousness can be different from what we define as a noun, as a narrow understanding of consciousness that we have. 
yeah, plants is consciousness, conscious in a different way, and bacteria and other your your prokaryotic um, pro, pro organisms can also have consciousness, but in a different way than we human define. Okay. So and uh, and as to the question, do we have a right to modify the environment that we live? I would say nature's answer is yes, we do have a right. All organisms modify the environment that they live in in order to survive and in order to thrive. But the, the problem now is we modify the environment that's actually make it destructive to other life, but also destructive to our own life. And, and so it's very maladaptive, even though at the moment, at the short term, it seems very adaptive for human beings to, to, to can take more habitat. And I also will challenge that thinking the national park as a reserve um, kind of protects a unspoiled environment, a nature. Uh, I think uh, even the current administration recognized there's a reckoning point. The North America was inhabited by the first people by the indigenous people who actually managed the land very well. Um, when the Europeans first come to the camp to the land, what they saw as a pristine virgin land was actually meticulously managed by the indigenous people. And it was kind of a sort of a genocide um, to remove the people from this land and circle it around and call it the park. And often it didn't work that way. Um, once you remove the people from the, the land, um, the land changes to a different direction. Um, and often, you know, not necessary to a better, um, to a more productive and a diverse ecosystem. This is actually some of the problem I'm trying to raise to bring to Sawar National Park. Um, the Sawar National Park is the park, you know, um, on the both sides of Tucson and named after the iconic plant, the giant saguaro, and um, you know, icon of the Sonoran Desert. At the moment, because there's so few people work on the land in the park, we have to use helicopters to spread herbicides in order to contain the invasion expansion of a bubble grass. But we can if we can actually have people be a productive force on this land to turn bubble grass into a resource, a solution, then we don't need to use helicopter to spray poisonous herbicide to contain this grass. So at the moment that's the best the park can do and then I very much understand it and then it's actually a effective way of um, protecting the rest of the ecological community. But we have a much better way, but we're not doing it because as you said, the society is disconnected. Uh, we're, we're soaked into our technological world and disconnected from the land. It's and hard to get, time, it's hard, well, it's hard to get people to care about their environment. And the, honestly, what are the benefits of this grass? Because it seems like it, we introduced it for a reason, and it seems like that reason's gone now. It seems like now the biggest issue is trying to maintain it. It's like we can't get rid of it all. It's like a weed. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the grass is actually very productive. Um, it can grow in the Sonoran Desert on a very open space. So the desert is like a 
big garden. Uh, when people, especially refugee families, come to Tucson, first they saw they thought everything was organized, the plan in the Sonoran Desert, because there's so much space and there's so much diversity to see. Um, but but the weird thing is why there can be so much space, right? Um, if species are really, we say, if a species evolved to take all the opportunities, then there really should be a species that can occupy all these open space and allow, not leave any empty space. Um, there's many reasons, um, you know, the past glaciation and the disruptions, major disruptions, and the limitation of global dispersal. But not until now, if we get a species that can actually take a lot of these um, very tough soil and grow ma massive biomass. And bubble grass was selected to do this job, uh, to occupy um, you know, these uh, steep slopes, these eroded um, slopes to become a soil stabilizer, and also to produce a lot of uh, green biomass to feed the cattle. Also remember, when the grass was introduced in the 1930s, it was after the Dust Bowl. So what we did in the 19th century also damaged a lot of the native grassland that was on the, in the Sonoran Desert to make it even more barren. So bubble grass took that opportunity and, and really expand, you know, take, use it as advantage to take the vacancy of the land. Um, but in the same process, it also really pushed away a lot of, a lot of native species. Uh, so it's sort of a dilemma. I mean, it's a kind of a missed opportunity. If we can actually actively participate on the land, um, so then we can sort of creatively use bubble grass as an opportunity to build more soil while preventing it from burning. And after the soil is built, then it can, can become more conducive to other species. So trees can come in, some other perennial grasses then can come in. And at that point, when the soil becomes richer, it actually becomes less, less suitable for bubble grass because it probably will not be as competitive as other grasses and the perennials and trees that can use a more fertile soil. In that way, we, if we can actually participate in that process of succession, we can actually, actually use bubble grass to change a land that's more diverse and productive. But we are not doing it because we don't have enough people <laughs> so to what, work there creatively and think creatively. What um, so would just would it be trying to find an idea? Is that why we would need more people, or what steps would more people do? Like after you get more people, if you had the people that you needed to do so, what would be the first things that they could implement to start? moving this towards this direction because i mean the fact that you're interested in the desert just seems like to me it's a last ditch effort because that area is so hard to grow anything it's like if you were going to be a farmer you would want to pick up something with good soil already on it something like grass and that's kind of the easy route you kind of took the hard route in a sense being obsessed with the desert you can grow specific things that are able to grow in harsh climates but even then there's very, very few things. Well, I, I actually will welcome you to come visit Tucson, visit Southern Arizona. And I've been to Arizona, a... they got a lot of cactuses. <laughs> yeah, so first of all, you know, 
when you become someone who observes nature, you understand they're not just one cactus, right? They're not just cactus, and there are so many different species. It actually hosts some of the highest biodiversity um, in North America. And then second, um, that land, um, the Southern Arizona and Northern Sonora, was some of the earliest agriculture, see some of the earliest agriculture development in North America. There are at least 4,000 years of history of irrigated farming along Santa Cruz River by autumn. Um, so it's not barren land. The rivers in Tucson, these days they were dry. They only runs when the, when the monsoon comes and the winter rain comes. But back in the, just 100 years ago, or less than 180 years ago, these rivers are running perennial rivers. Um, but we drained the aquifer, depleted the groundwater, so the river ran dry. Um, so, so as we make the land drier, it becomes less supportive to life, and it becomes more and more barren. And but the if we actually, live. and the creatures live, creatures are smart. Um, but if we can put our mind and our heart to bring positive change, to put more vegetation in, to improve the soil, then the rain will come back and the water will come back because these are connected. Um, so you're more optimistic if- than me. You're so much more optimistic than me because my fear is, see, humankind can destroy an environment, but trying to fix it, it's a, it's a, it's a whole different process. It's much easier to fall in a bad habit than kick a bad habit. And that's the thing is that we know about the damage we did now because we have more information and we saw it happen. We saw the change happen, but trying to reverse that change, I'm not trying to deter people from doing that, but it just seems like it's going to be a lot harder of a process that I don't know we're going to, we're going to effectively do it properly. It's like introducing the, the, that, that grass, it catches fire. Now, how can we fix it? We need more people. Guess what? People aren't interested. Most of the public is more obsessed with their phone. I just feel like when we get involved in something, we're really doing it more of a disservice than rather if we just left it alone in the first place. But I mean, if we were going to try and look up the moral route, I would say of fixing what you destroyed. I'm, I'm with that. It's just I don't know how to else to get people to jump on board. Because as soon as you start saying we need to save the environment, you don't explain it in a way that they can understand it, the amount of benefits that would have if we save this environment, the amount of creatures coming back. When, when, it, when we talk about Arizona, I just think lizards and scorpions. That's all I think of. I can't think of anything else that would live out there. But if you start explaining it in a way of like, no, there's so much more this land has to offer, then you kind of get people that start realizing, okay, well, how do we get these steps done? And then you have more questions. Then you have more people interested in a topic. You know, it doesn't just have to be scientists and researchers. I, I, I think we ha- you have to sales pitch it right. I just wish, I, we, I don't know. Like I said, it has to be taught when you're in the beginning systems of learning in school. Like you have to understand that like, yeah, we did damage. That's all people here now. People always are hearing that they're the issue and i feel like that's not how it should be explained i think it should be explained that we might have been the issue but we can also be the cure in a sense we can help out but i think 
just like how I'm thinking is that I don't want to see people be like, let's go help out. And then next thing you know, they do more damage. It's like, I don't want to see any more damage be done to something we've already destroyed. So that's a legit concern. And that's a real concern. Are we making, as we create solutions for problems, we are, are we actually creating future problems? And uh, thus far, the way we do it, we are creating more problems when we think we're creating solutions. But there is another way around. Um, and um, there's a movement um, of a regenerative movement, of a permaculture movement. And that we talk about regeneration, just like Mother Earth. Mother Earth regenerates. And Mother Earth turns problems into solutions. Just like bubble grass can be a problem, bubble grass can also be a solution to nourishing the soil. Um, manure. Manures can be a problem of polluting the water. A manure can be a solution to fertilize the land. Um, so it really depends on how, how we do it. And how can we do it? And that goes leads to back to that spiritual practice of mindfulness practice. We really need to slow down and then to, to observe and interact deeply rather than shallowly. And we can't rush. I think I'm on, I was in the same boat, rushed to find a solution because we see such a big problem. Our own survival is on the brink. Um, so I would try rush myself to try to find solutions. In that kind, in that kind of rush to find solutions, we also forget that mindfulness, and we create more problems, more suffering to ourselves, our own health, mental and physical, but also to other beings. So that's you know that's why I learned the lesson, learned the teaching from Buddhist practice and Buddhist philosophy how we can first need to protect ourselves for being mindful, but because we are all interconnected, protecting others is the same as protecting ourselves. Um, to understand that, to really know that at the gut level, we do need to be mindful and then to do deep practice, um, interacting with all beings around us. Don't you think it has to be a constant reminder, though? I feel like if you live in a big city and you never leave it, you lose that connection. I feel like a lot of times, like even for me, I live in a beach town, but when I go drive out to the country, it's like a mile or something, 45 minutes away, maybe um, I, I, I start having like a deeper respect and want to actually get out of my car and kind of smell the air and really be around in the environment, you know, feel it on my face, feel the sun on my skin. Um but a lot of people are just stuck inside their houses. I mean, society is set up to enjoy Netflix, not enjoy the environment in a lot of sense, especially in a lot of major cities. And I feel like that's where you have a whole generations of kids growing up that are just being involved more in city life rather than being involved in a more um, outdoor lifestyle, you know, insides made funner in some aspects and i think that's a form of brainwashing in a sense i don't really consider being inside fun but it's easy you don't have to go anywhere but also is sitting on your porch i mean during the pandemic one of the best things that i saw besides all the sourdough pictures i was seeing all over instagram was people starting their own home gardens 
And you know what the sad thing was, was the fear that people thought grocery stores were going to shut down. So they needed to grow their own food. I don't want it to be that type of thing that gets people interested in farming. I'd rather people just want to do these types of things. I bought a couple of plants. I set them outside and I was having fun with it for a little while. Got sunburned a couple of times too. It's an enjoyable process. It, there's something different. It's, it nurtures your soul. Um, if people believe in that type of thing, I believe in the soul. I don't know if it relies in your chest. I think it relies in your brain because I don't know, just you can't mess with someone's head. They don't, they don't, they don't act the same. Um, but I feel like there is something, especially if we talk about one of the key factors I've noticed during just the past five, 10 years with the mental health that's been decreasing in this country and all over the world, people starting to have severe mental health issues. What's a thing that's been going away that you could link that to environment walk outside. You know, they say count to 10 when you're stressed out. If you just take a nice deep inhale, whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed and I'm about to have a panic attack, I step outside, smell the salt air. It cools me down. It, it, it brings me back to base level. And I think the environment's linked in with that too. There's a lot of disconnection that comes between our environment, but also ourselves. And I think that starts with the environment as well too. It's why people take psychedelics and go out in the middle of the desert. That's why people do it. I'm telling you, it's, it's, a, it's a freeing feeling. It feels good being involved in water, being involved in anything, mountains, land, sand, whatever you want to say. It's, it's like a, a key element to our species. But I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that because it's kind of like sleep. I talked to a sleep scientist on here and he said, sleep, people feel like they can use less. But every time you ask someone how they're feeling, they'll always say, I, I, I didn't sleep well. It's, it's essential to your human being as much, it, maybe not as much as eating and drinking or doing whatever, but it, it is essential. We just don't prioritize it. And we don't prioritize our own mental health in some sense. We rather take a pill and get over it. Well, imagine if I told you, you can just step outside and be involved in nature, sit, sit under a shady tree. It's something different. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And then there's a there's evolutionary reason why we find nature killing and why we, you know, feel less stressed when we get out of the city and be in the countryside with trees, with other life. Because that's where we're from. For hundreds of millions of years, species evolved with other species in this kind of environment. The tree that gives us oxygen, it's not just the oxygen, but the color, the smell, you know, it's not just the planets evolved with this environment. So that's our ancestors. But the ancestors of the planets also evolved hundreds of millions of years in the making. Of course, we can heal once we reconnect with all the other life. And also, really, you know, in the West, there's such a strong concept of environment versus human. Sorry, there's no difference. We are the environment, and then the environment is us. We are just one part of this bigger planet Earth. You know, that's just the first step of disconnecting us from all the other things 
and that we are part of this bigger Earth community, this bigger universal universe community. We tend to separate these. But, uh, you know, the Eastern, I don't want to do too much comparison, but Eastern philosophy, there was never such duality. The Eastern philosophy um, teaches to always break that false view of duality. Um, there's this oneness. Yeah. Do you think that um, the, um, the perspective is changing from, I guess, the start of, let's say, Western civilization? You see people prioritize themselves over their environment. I feel like in a lot of respects, especially with generations like myself and younger, um, they're having a different viewpoint of that. It seemed like for so long throughout history, we were more about doing whatever we possibly can because we were the essential. Now it seems like there's a lot more respect because I think we understand more. And I don't know what point it's going to get to, maybe a dwindling point when we start to notice that the environment's gone, but we're we care about it now and we'll start to see that change. See, people don't notice something until it's gone. And I don't want it to get to that point, but I think you're starting to see a lot. Like I've talked to people who lead movements about volunteer human extinction, just saying, don't have kids to save the environment. That's a method. Sure. I don't want to follow that, but at the same time, it's someone that's doing something because they feel like it's the bigger piece is the environment. It is the home that we live in. You know, we all see a little picture of everyone hugging across the globe, world peace and all that. What about the globe? You know, that thing that we stand on, the thing that is our home, the thing that our home is built on, you know, it's just a deeper connection we got to have with it. I think that's starting to happen now. Um, yeah, there's a philosophical point of view of emphasize things always change. Um, so when you hit one sort of extreme, just like the U.S. politics, the pendulum swings. Um, when you hit one extreme, people see the problem associated with that extreme. So it will it will come. The peak of that that extreme often also leads to the change that's that's coming. I mean, tying back to to Peter's theory, it's all about change and how change in the space and how change in time creates opportunities. For the diversity to thrive, and and then the same thing in the Buddhist teaching, everything changes, right? So the only way to survive and to be happy is to know how to change with change. Um, well, you would think that a top predator. I think the way I'm starting to view it now is that we, the human species, is a predator, doesn't have everything to it is technically prey. The only thing that is our own thing that kills us, that we're its prey, is other people. It's its own species destroying itself, but also destroying the land that it's on and the creatures that are involved in it, because we are on the top. And I start to wonder, you would think that something that recognizes that it's on the top would see an, a more moral benefit of protecting everything else rather than being able to be, it's like a bully in high school. Instead of, imagine if you had a nice bully, the one that was able to like walk you to class and really take care of everybody and function like a leader instead of a bully. That's how we would have to view it. But we've been viewing it as we're the top of the food chain. Anything that we want that we can take is ours, you know? And the only thing that's able ever to keep us in line would be another 
one of us that would check us or be our predator or prey. It's you have a, a, a own race that doesn't have prey to anything. Instead, everything else is prey. Yeah. So you, you do, you know, bring that point that we are actually behave like top predators. Um, first of all, we were not top predators. Not, not, um, no, we, we, we evolved. And we were not, uh, we, we evolved gradually to be, um, but you know, um, so yeah. So once humans gain all the technology to be able to, to hunt, to kill animals much larger than ourselves, to drive away other top predators, we really become the toughest, the yeah. top, top predator, um, beyond tigers, beyond lions at these days. So that's a problem. Um, if you look at an ecosystem of the food chain, or of like the food chain, it really is a food web. And then look at the pyramid of, a, of the food energy, how it travels. The system can never afford many top predators because every time when you flow, move from a lower food chain to an upper food chain, you lose a lot of energy to metabolism. So, in a, on the African savanna, you can only see that many lions. You can't see as many lions as the buffaloes and the wildebeest because it's never going to work because you need multiple buffaloes to support one lion. And you need, need a massive grass to support a one wildebeest. Um, but what we are doing now is to behave like a top predator, but there's almost 7 billion top predators on planet Earth. Energetically, it doesn't work that way. And the only reason it works for the moment is because we're attracting fossil fuel to, to, to have this imbalanced system. Um, but nature always balances things. So this kind of working and operation won't last too long. And it's also detrimental to our health when we eat that much meat and overconsume the crops that we that we plant. Do you um feel like if we had a better, more relationship with our environment that we would probably have a renewable energy source by now? Well, we do have renewable energy sources. But it's um, not implemented I, through all, all out of society is what I'm saying. We're still using fossil fuels. I'm like, I feel like we would have a better understanding of solar, uh, wind, water, more effective methods to be able to utilize them globally rather than just in small local areas. We will, yeah, we'll find, we will have a, a careful use of, and in, you know, creative use of these renewable resources. I mean, renewable resource alone is not going to solve the problem because it still costs energy to produce solar panels and even pollution to produce solar panels, to produce wind turbines. And then, you know, I recall in the episode with Peter, we talked about the habitat that was taken to build a giant solar panel power plant, to build giant wind farms. So, yeah, you don't feel that great. <laughs> To be yeah. in the, the ha critical habitat of desert waters and to see miles of solar panels, it's it's a disconnection. Um, Wait, can I ask? Can I ask you a moral question? Yes. Do you think that this is a factor of our species just being able to manipulate the land around us? And it seems like there are some animals that do that to a very small scale, but we have such a huge impact, like. 
I don't, I, I think this is where the alien theorists or the, theorists come in, where they say we must be a product of an alien civilization because it is astounding in so many ways how we're able to manipulate our environment. And honestly, in my opinion, it's not the best thing ever. It, it's more of a horror um, if you really care about the environment. But I look at it like it is fascinating that one species has evolved to a point where it can literally change the makeup of a planet. I mean, something big, whether you want to say it's for good or for bad. I'm just saying that that ability is astounding. I've, I've heard of animals do it at such a small scale, like beavers can make a dam to block off a river or something. That's very, very minuscule. But being able to change the environment because you want it an, an in-ground pool, like, wh what is this? Like, this is something that's just, it's a species that's so complex and so ever-changing. It's a lot like our environment in a sense. The human intellect is marvelous. And it's even more marvelous. This is all the product of Mother Nature, of hundreds of millions of years, of billions of years of evolution that leads to such intellect. Now we can actually, this species, which is the product of this planet and of this universe, can go back to try to understand its origin of this planet and of this universe. Well, actually, thanks to the, this industrialization, the free energy that provided and the cheap free energy provided by fossil fuel. So that's, that's a strength, a marvelous achievement of human intellect and the industrialization is to find a better, more profound understanding of our origin, of where we are and of why we are. Um, but, but the thing is, we also need some spiritual guidance to how to much better use our intellect. Um, I think you, you said I'm optimistic, more optimistic than you. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> I, know, I know what's coming, and, and it's not pretty. Um, yeah, everyone's saying would... we're going to die at 2100. I've talked to so many people that have said 2100 is when we die. I'm like, I don't want that to happen. Well... Many may die, but the hope is all we have. And then I'm going to recommend the most recent book Dr. Jane Goodall published. She's already in her 90s, and I'm impressed that she's still, you know, talking and writing books. And I think people already know Dr. Jane Goodall, the, you know, the brave woman who studied the chimpanzee. So her recent book is The Book of Hope. And in the Book of Hope, she put four reasons why we should have hope. And the first reason is the amazing human intellect. And then the second reason is the resilience of nature. And then the third reason is the power of young people. And then the fourth reason is the indomitable human spirit. So we have the ability to turn our destiny if we choose to do so. And I would say, don't worry about how many people will follow you. Just do it. Once you start doing it, you're not going to succeed by doing it alone. You have to work with other people to make change, to use our intellect, to use our spirit, to bring positive change. But once a group, a small group starts to do it, other people will follow. You may still be the marginal, 
you know, there's still probably just this small group of people, a teeny, teeny percentage of the global population who are doing it. First of all, that's not true. <laughs> and I have, you know, challenged people, I mean, I can provide some resources of this global network of people that try to bring change, bring hope, bring a regenerative society and a planet. But we are going to be a small group. But remember the principle of evolution. Sometimes evolution happens with gene mutation. And the mutation, this new, new, new genotype, this new genotype that leads to a new phenotype can be very small, a very small fraction of the entire population. But if the environment, the surrounding environment, selects for that gene genotype, selects for that phenotype, because that phenotype is adaptive, then when the chance is right, they really reproduce fast and become the dominant phenotype, the dominant species. What I mean is once you start to bring positive change, the Earth's environment is going to select for that positive change. For this group of people who actually provides solutions, even though at the moment the society doesn't see them, but decades down the road, they will see it. And actually, the change is already happening. You know, a lot of people are already doing it because the younger generation knows what is a daunting task and how, how important it is to take action now to fight climate change, to fight for our own survival, and for the survival of all species that we connect with. I feel like we're definitely a fourth quarter um, society. We're definitely a fourth quarter world, which means that there's only four quarters in a game. So it's always that last quarter where we start to see a lot of like the makeup of all the damage that we've done. But I hope that we're not so divided as just different countries because we still think in that mindset. We still think America, Russia, UK, we think in these like country divided by invisible lines rather than thinking of a human species. We all know we're part of the same species, but people want to divide things down deeper and deeper and deeper. It's much like groups. People love a group. They love groupthink. They love group minds. They love being in a group. But then if they want something different than one little rule from that their group has, they divide down even deeper. It's kind of like a cell that keeps cell dividing this is what we are. We just keep dividing into lower and lower groups. And next thing you know, instead of having a group of 100, you have a group of 10, group of 20. There's organizations out there, plenty of them that are doing amazing things to help out our environment, but they're divided on some of the biggest problems. I've reached out to people who want coal energy, who want solar energy, who want water. I've reached out all across the board. There are people that won't associate with you because you talk to someone from the other group. That's strange. That is very, very weird, all because I feel like I wouldn't say politics, but I feel like there's a, a supportive of your team that you don't want to associate or you don't want to talk or you don't want to do anything because you're talking to someone from the other team. And I don't think that's how you should be looking at it. I think you should look at it as we're all literally in the rat race to try and figure out what's going to be best for the planet and best for society to run off of. Now, the issue also becomes is you're trying to get people to think about future generations. 
And that's very, very hard to do because they don't have a face to attach a name to or anything that you might say. They're just hypotheticals that you're speaking about future generations. I don't know what my grandkids are going to look like. I have no clue. They're hypothetical. They're in the air. But to get me to care about future generations, to get someone else to care about future generations, they have to really see the impact of the actions and where that leads to. And sadly, I don't think it's been told correctly the past 100, 200 years. People have been scared or media has shown them that the world's going to be gone tomorrow. And with that dishonesty, maybe they're trying to get them to act in a really quick way to be able to turn around the actions that they do. But that constant crying of the wolf has gotten people to stop caring because they've heard it all before. And that's where I start to step in the boat of where I'm optimistic is that I believe that we'll come up with a change, but I don't necessarily want it to be at that last minute. And I get the dishonesty angle. I think it's important to get people to act, but I also believe about coming to the table clean, much like this conversation me and you are having, we're just talking. It's coming to the table clean, not you're being involved in this moment with me. That's what I wish more of society did. But it's hard because when you consider personal intent compared to global intent, people are more than willing to put up their personal intent and care only about that rather than the global scale. Maybe I'm being a little bit sappy, but I don't think I'm wrong in saying that. I think society has shown the past however long we've been around, all of us, that it's been going that way for a very long time. Yes, I agree. Uh Ego and tribalism is human's biggest enemy. Um, there's a, you know, thinking through the angle of human evolution, it's nothing strange that we form groups and fight with other groups. The tribalism is innate in human nature because, you know, we evolve as a social organism. We evolve as social animals, but in the setting of small groups of small tribes. So within the small tribe, we see each other as supporting members, as comrades, right, as family. So then together we can hunt, we can build shelter, we can defend. But but also means we need to form this type group to fight against a different group in order to survive. So so that leads to the unfortunate consequence over being tribal, um, to perceive there's others and us. Um, but because we are social, social animals, we do have the ability to empathize, to be compassionate. We are some of the most empathetic organisms on this planet. We can empathize not just with humans, but even with other animals and even plants. So, so as we practice that empathy, that compassion, we can actually foster, nourish our ability to, to kill, not kill, to deplete, to, to diminish that false notion of us versus others, of me versus others. I think, you know, that's, 
that's a very tall order. It's very difficult to do because I told you it's against the human nature. That's the product of human evolution. But we're doing that. We're doing that. Yeah, I I think. I think you just have to have society set up in a way that prioritizes that over money. You know, we prioritize really the wrong things in a lot of aspects and people go, well, those things that we prioritize are things that keep the lights on, that keep the world going. And I'm like, because we built it in that way, it's a system that feeds into itself. I think you can turn that around by prioritizing other things. I think that's why you have so many kids that are so young that are trying to throw a monkey wrench into the system because they don't want to run by that anymore. And that's a good thing. But sadly, we have a in the States, we have a job where the person that runs the, the country, it changes. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Maybe you want it. But also, it's like by the time they figure out how to work the work the system, they end up leaving the office. It just doesn't make sense. Everything's crazy. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know the, the, the way everything's running has been completely nuts for the longest time. I think it's going to keep going in this way because sadly our human programming has been fixed on money and all these things. And I don't, when you look at a child, they don't care about money. I don't know how many times I spent my Christmas money, just giving it to my parents to pay bills or something like that. It didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know the full capabilities of it. And sadly, the only way that you can stop someone from flipping the switch or something like that is to show that money doesn't have to be the world's essential piece, but people will go to war over it. We went over to war with gold, but you know what they used to fight over? They used to fight over salt. They used to fight because salt was to preserve their food. Survival was in food. Now it's switched over to money. How do we switch it back to where caring for your land is going to produce the food? That's what we need to do. Um, I do want to, you know, mention that you talk about the current political situation, the discord, and um, I get into politics. Unstable, but that no, that that's very important. Again, that's all connected. Um, a working functional democracy requires people to respect each other, respect each other's voices, and respect each other's experiences and willing to talk to each other. Um, so without that respect, democracy is going to fall apart. It's the same thing I've talked about, you know, from the very beginning of our conversation, that spiritual path, that you have to respect other life on Earth in order to have a functioning Earth democracy. That every species has a voice then you can have a thriving system that's diverse and stable and productive. And in talking about why we're in this mode um, of this political fight, the polarization, thinking I'm right, I'm the only group that has the right answer. I think it has, does to do with what you mentioned, that money, or rather it's the product of industrialization the industrialization takes away the need to have to work with many other people. These days, we can work with machines. It's easier to work with machines because you don't have to argue over it. Don't say that. Don't them. say that. <laughs> oh, that scares me so much how quick machines are taking. I mean, it's they're more per, they're about as productive as a more than a person, I would say. But it just 
to me, that loses so much human value. I just, I'm, I'm happy we could create an intelligence, like an AI. That's awesome. Like that's a, a thing that thinks and it can speak in its own code and it learns. That's amazing. That's digital children. But you're having people become digitally native. And that's what scares me is see when I do the conversations like we're doing, I look at you as your information, your code, you're, you're, you're interacting with my code in a sense where we're having a language and a dialect and we're learning from each other. We're having deep thoughts and conversations like human beings are supposed to, but then that got reduced to a device. And then now that device is letting machines do the talking for us. And that's where we start to see the disconnect. And you think we're disconnected from our environment. Wait till we become disconnected with ourselves. It's already heading that way. We've been doing it for a while now. It's, that's what scares me. It's like, that's why I say you have more optimism than me. I'm, I'm, over, I'm over here like, man, people suck. Like in a sense, yeah. But at the same time, we're amazing. Um, again, I don't think there's a difference between disconnect with the environment and the disconnect within ourselves because we are the environment. The very first step we start to disconnect with other beings in nature, we start to disconnect within ourselves because everything in nature we hold within. Try that. You know, if you breathe in the forest, just take a deep breath in the forest, breathe in, breathe out, you will feel that connection. Um, when can I talk to plants that. though? That's what's getting me. It's like, you ever study plant perception about studying if a plant has like some type of frequency that they're on that we just can't read? Cause you know, some plants can speak to each other and change the flavor of their leaves. So insects will stop eating them or there's a tr uh, tree population. in I think Africa or something like that, that avatar based off of um, that's able to communicate through its root systems. Now, there was an old experiment a long time ago about plant perception. They actually boiled shrimp, little shrimps in a frying pan and hooked up uh, those um, lie detector tests onto the plant leaves, the ferns leaves to see if it would communicate. It, it was, they consider it no, because they, the amount of times they did it, there was like, there's no evidence that this thing communicates. But I feel like with technology expanding and you're able to kind of get deeper and deeper and more information out of things now, try doing that test again. Like, I bet you there's a frequency that they're on that we, we, we sink into when we're in it, but our, we don't understand our minds enough. Like, that's the thing is that people think that we can't speak to plants. I'm like, how do you know? Like our brains, when we're in that environment, we hook onto that nature frequency where you just feel love and happiness. You just feel like you don't want to be anywhere. You're not worried about work or anxiety or stress that's probably something you can tap into. And I bet that's like a radio channel. I bet, you know, the way we're speaking is on channel one, but they're speaking on something completely different. I don't know. That sounds a little bit crazy, but I feel it. I feel it. Yes. Plants communicate with each other in a different way. Just, just like non-plants, like other animals also communicate in a way often we humans don't realize, right? It's just not communicating in a human way. Yes, and then there are many studies to, to reveal how plants actually communicate. And I have to tell everybody, everybody thus far our understanding is still very much limited because we still tend to think and study through the human angle to understand these communication. And the truth is much beyond our own limited understanding. Um, and that's what, you know, I mean, we have here, we sort of to some degree criticize the technology 
<laughs> that, that kind of creates that disconnect. But if we, we actually, we're being mindful as we design the technology and as we use the technology, it can actually function as a positive force to foster the connection. It really depends on how we design and how we use it, right? If without this communication tool of computer and Zoom, you and I will not be able to talk to each other at this moment because I'm in China and you're in the United States. So if we stay on the internet, only use the internet to connect, that, that's also going to be a problem. You need to go out of the house and shake hands with real humans and hug real trees to make that connection too. The same thing for scientific inquiry. I think, you know, the more we're studying nature, the, the more profound understanding we know we have for our own origin, for the origin of this planet, life on it. And now we know plants has all these, you know, different ways to behave, communicate, and have a consciousness that's different from, from human consciousness or animal consciousness. But I think that's a way what science can contribute to, 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 to our deeper understanding and a deeper connection with all beings uh, on this planet, in this universe. Um, but it can also go a different route if we really project our own thinking uh, to study nature. Um, you know, that can lead to something as wrong as eugenics. Yeah. We got to try and keep the narrative alive of just caring about our ecosystem and our environment that we're in, not just caring about ourselves, but I think society will shift. I just don't know when it's going to be. I think people are starting to kind of get fed up with a lot of the media and stuff like that. You're seeing some weird shifts start to happen. I don't think environmental um, organizations are the cure. Uh, mostly because everyone I've seen that gets popularized on media is not the best. It's kind of like people throwing paint on other people because they're not eating vegan. I'm like, you can't do that. Like you have to come to people with a rational discussion, much like you've done with me in this conversation. You've told me I'm not spiritual at all, but you've talked about it in a way where you weren't projecting it out on me. You've just kind of talked about it in the way that you like it. And I feel like that's with everything you have to show people your perspective of things, not try and force. We do a lot of talking as people and we do a lot of yelling, talking down, I would say. Not enough talking. I, I, I kind of messed up the saying there, but we don't really communicate effectively. I think a lot of the times our words get lost with our emotion. And in a sense, that's good because our emotion can spark some of the best change. But are we doing it effectively? Are we yelling at our friends? Are we doing these types of things that are considered bad? Or are we actually talking to each other? And Max, it's been a freaking pleasure talking with you, man. You're a, you're, you're awesome, dude. I don't know. You were telling me before, you're like, you have so many interesting guests. Why would you want to talk to me? I was like, are you interesting, dude. You're freaking amazing. You're doing great things compared to what I'm doing. I'm going to go probably take a nap later. That's it. I'm not going to go outside. I might actually, I might change. It's 20 degrees out, dude. I don't know about that. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, but is there a place where people can find you? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have any social media links, any websites that you want to uh, promote? No, actually, I don't have a Twitter account. Um, actually, I try to avoid at the moment to draw attention to myself. Um, you know, being a Buddhist, um, I strongly follow that principle of no self. Um, good for you and also i just i mean i'm really being honest uh, you know unlike mm, my advisor 
who has built a beautiful theory and, and then taught so many students in his life that I'm still at the very beginning of my career, uh, of my path. And uh, really, I don't think I accomplished much. So I want to refer to folks to some of the resources, um, which I feel maybe you can find it helpful. Um, so the first, I think I mentioned a few of these things um, during our conversation. Um, the book by Dr. Jane Goodall, and the recent book, The Book of Hope. Um, to be honest, I haven't read it, um, but having been in Dr. Jane Goodall's speech in Tucson and in Shanghai, and being volunteered in the Youth Centuries program, um, I know how powerful her message can be. Um, so, so I, I recommend it. Uh, the second is some of the Buddhist teaching that relates to protecting our earth. Uh, if you have a chance, I encourage you to go to the website called earthholder.training. That's it, earthholder.training. Uh, it has links, resources to, to Thich Nhat Hanh, um, the Plum Village in lineage to engage Buddhism. A lot of the, the teaching is not just teaching. It's a teaching is not um, just about being spiritual. You actually need to know how to do it and how to do it with a community. You need a community to do it together. So, so I recommend that. Uh, again, earthholder.training. Uh, and the third is the permaculture framework um, that founded on the principle, the, the ethic basis of earth care, people care, and fair share. Um, so that's the movement you know, that tried to make our work, our life regenerative to be a contributing member of this eco-earth community. So I would say recommend you to go to the permacultureprinciples.com. And again, the permacultureprinciples.com. Um, there are some of the resources provided by one of the co-founders, Dave Humbrin, uh, of the permaculture movement. I'm going to link it all in the description too, so people can just click on it as well. Um, Max, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, man. Uh, seriously. Um, Love to have you back on the show. Uh, Going to wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.